my partner Brandon Averill today. Disclaimer, Eric Averill and Brandon Averill are the co-founders of AWM Capital. Due to industry regulations, it's essential to explicitly state that investment or strategies mentioned on this podcast may not be suitable for you, and you should discuss your specific situation with a qualified, certified financial planner. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of AWM Capital or its affiliates. For more information, visit athleteceo.com. Success and significance, control of your time, your relationships, your money and purpose. You never lose. You only learn and win. Doing what's right and making money are not mutually exclusive. They're the same thing. Is this even possible in today's world or is it a pipe dream? Jeff Pearsall is not only convinced that it's possible, but it's inevitable. Jeff, a former award-winning collegiate basketball coach, is the CEO and founder of Space Coast Living and SCB Marketing. He is the co-founder of the TREP Summit and author of Dogs Don't Bark at Park Cars, which has become one of my most frequently gifted books. Jeff's entrepreneurial pursuits have been recognized as Business of the Year by Brevard County, Inc. 500 Fastest Growth Companies, and Growth Florida's Top 50 Companies to Watch. Jeff believes successful entrepreneurialism based on personal responsibility, a sky's the limit optimism, and above all, value-based ethical decisions. Guys, this episode is jam-packed with a lot of actionable insights and great takeaways, but here are a few of my favorite that I want you to watch out for. First, what are the 10 qualities that every successful entrepreneur shares? What is true freedom? How we should all be thinking about and redefining wealth? How to overcome fear and how to develop that mindset that there is no losing, only learning and winning. And then lastly, why ethical capitalism is the answer to our country's problems. So I hope you guys enjoy my conversation with Jeff Pearsall. Well, Jeff Pearsall, welcome to the uh, Athlete CEO podcast. I'm uh, excited to have you on the show this morning uh, for a few different reasons. First, uh, our podcast is about mastering your your money and your business. And uh, obviously, with your background and experience, I think our founders and our entrepreneurs are, are going to love to hear uh, your journey through business. But what I'm most excited for is, is the last part of our show, which is mastering your life. And the reason uh, I'm excited for our conversation is so often we we can find people who are financially successful or successful in their business life, but have chosen to sacrifice the the rest of their life where um, through your book and, and just uh, conversations that I've listened to you, you really push back against and say that you don't have to choose success in, in business over life, but you can have both. So really excited for our audience to, to hear uh, what you have to share with us this morning. Well, Eric, that is the, um, the conundrum I think that media kind of creates for all of us. And, you know, Lord knows the athlete has particularly the one, you know, that, that goes through high level college or any level of pro, um, you know, they're just looked upon differently and consequently it creates a set of circumstances where 
you know, you believe that the attainment of money is the ultimate goal. And um, any of them in those processes have had an extraordinary amount of number of circumstances that really paints a different picture. And it really gets around to the key component, chapter one of the book, which is trust. Who do you trust and how do you figure out trust and where do you go to get trust? Yeah, that's, that's great. Now, speaking from the athletic side, you know, this isn't something that, that you're speaking uh, essentially from the stands as a fan. You, you had a lot of experience as a four-sport athlete yourself and then ended up being an award-winning basketball coach. And can, right. you, can you share a little bit about your background as a coach and, and what that taught you? Yeah, thanks, Eric. I mean, it, it, I think probably the most relevant situation is having the opportunity to have a, a couple of the re- unique athletes that ended up playing in the NBA uh, and having those experiences. Um, I think that seeing what those guys went through is probably the, the greatest indicator of what this conversation is about. I'm not going to use names uh, because their privacy needs to be protected, but, you know, drafted first round, um, I think the seventh or ninth pick overall, um, you know, substantial signing bonus, great kid. Next thing he knows, he's got every family member calling him cousins, cousins he hasn't seen before, (laughs) in-laws, and they all want his support. And they feel like that he should be able to take care of their car, should be able to take care of the, you know, the problem they just ran into where they need an extra $500, you know, and $500 on an annual salary of $5 million doesn't sound like anything. Yeah. But there's a, there's a principle and the principle is don't do for one that you won't do for all and don't assume somebody else's problems. Hmm because they're not yours. It doesn't matter who it is. Um, And, you know, he took on the aspects of, he took care of himself first, which was critically important. Then he took care of his mom and he never went outside of those paradigms. And he lost a lot of friendships. But at the end of the day, what really ends up mattering and all that you're going to exit with are your immediate family and those that you, his, his wife and his children and his mom. And uh, you're, you're going to have to burn some bridges along the way. And guess what? It's, that's those dogs that are barking at you uh, along that path, Eric. Yeah, that's, that's great wisdom. I mean, we see it a lot with, with our athletes. And, and that's a success story you just shared. You know, very, very rarely, unfortunately, do you see a lot of young athletes make those tough decisions. And the, a little bit of a fear, I think, of, of wanting to be liked from all people. And, you know, we would, we would argue in the conversations we have with a lot of our clients is, you know, those really aren't your friends. The, those individuals yeah. that, are, <laughs> that they really want something from the association with you instead of, of caring about you as a person. And, you know, I love it. It's, it's one of the foundation uh, principles that you talked about of your 10 and really everything's built on trust and uh, the relational capital too, is I think that's something 
talking to our younger athletes about that uh, you had shared in, in the book of the importance of understanding how to do relationships well. And I think that that's a, a lost art or a skill set that that we see very apparent, not only in the athlete world, but even in the business world as well. And can you speak to, to that area of relational, um, you know, the, the importance of relationships? Yeah, Eric, I think, you know, where we fail on this side of it is we tend to want to talk to people in our style. Hmm. So I want you to hear from me the way that I communicate best. So perfect examples, I have three children. And if we were to take those three children and I would say, go to your room and clean and make your bed. I would get three different responses to that statement because each one of them hears it in a different manner. So if I'm going to be an effective parent to them, I have to deliver that message in a way in which each one of them is going to hear it uniquely. One of them, you know, everywhere she goes is a party and there's going to be a thousand people. So, you know, I've got to be more direct and more clear and more conversational with them. The other one, you know, it's just clean, simple. There's a direct consequence. You know, you're not going out. You're not doing anything. There's a, you know, there's a risk-reward relationship, and he'll respond to that. And the other one, I've got to very calmly explain to them why this is important and how much it's going to mean to me when they successfully accomplish this task. Now, obviously, I'm oversimplifying this this as a dramatic uh, opportunity, but all three of these kids are in three different categories of communication. And if I choose to communicate only in my style, they won't hear me. And this is what happens to us um, so much in the employee ranks. And I think for a a lot of athletes, um, if we go back to that scenario, or even CEOs, entrepreneurs, founders, we're so used to being driven by ourselves. Mm. And we've been so used to this environment where we've come up and there's a lot of people, particularly in the athletic world, that it's just admiration. Right. And it's unjust admiration. You know, when you're a CEO of a direct sales company and you finish a speech and you come off the stage, there's thousands of people coming up to you, depending upon the size of the audience, you know, and basically they just want to touch you. You know, that's, that's unfound. Right. I mean, there's, there's nothing sound in that at all. And so you can't get addicted to that. And I used to always call it stage addiction. And it's the same thing that an athlete goes through when they leave the playing environment. They have to check their ego at the door and understand, okay, that stage addiction, either you're going to find a false way to fulfill it, which typically ends up in a, a really bad crisis because it, it, it's, it's a false pretense, or check that thing at the door and realize your ego is not attached to it anymore, and therefore you can move on and have you know, much, much better 
success in your life. But stage addiction is, is a very, very tough thing. And typically it leads to us communicating to others in our own style instead of making the adjustment to the people we're talking to. That's powerful. What would you, where would you point athletes or founders and individuals who are, are sitting here listening and saying that resonates? I, I know, I know that I can fall victim to, to that of being addicted to that success of, you know, the, the buzzword, right. And the, the business community is emotional intelligence. How, right. how do you even start to develop that? Where would you, where would you point our audience to as far as resources or starting out? So there's, there's three things that we do across every employee. The first is a disc profile, which is a lot of familiarity with the DISC profiles. Now, that profile typically is always talking to you about your preferred method of communication. And that's good to know. But then you've got to flip it on its heels and go, okay, your profile happens to be a CS profile and I'm a DI profile. And that means I need to talk to you in a slower, more precise, task-oriented method in order for you to hear me. You know, if I'm talking to another D personality, it's just very direct, dominant, you know, and, and those guys, we all get along real well because we're similar personalities. The second is a Colby test, and that's K-O-L-B-E. The Colby tells you, your preferred mechanism of doing things, and that's your working mechanisms. So I'm a high quick start, which means I love new ideas. I'm going to be a rabbit chaser. You know, a new idea, new thing comes in. Man, they're all great and they're all good, but you can't chase them all. So you've got to know yourself very well in order to put the people around you that are going to support you and be able to create an environment that's going to make you successful. And then the last one is the Gallup Strength Finders. The Strength Finders, mixed with the Colby, mixed with the disc, starts to paint a picture of where your unique ability is. And wherever that unique ability lies, then you go fill in around you with your team players who are committed to the same vision. And now you end up having a, a really nice picture of being able to create players around you that are dedicated and they understand who you are because you know who you are also. And I think a lot of players, a lot of athletes, they've been in one environment and then that environment is not necessarily what's going to be in the business environment, but their unique strengths and personalities are going to be. It's just they've been demonstrated on a playing field or a court, and now they need to transition over into the business environment. And I've always said great athletes make great business people because the work ethic um, we, we can outdo, particularly coaches. I mean, you, you do, do, do for no money, and you know, you're constantly competing. And really the only difference is, is that we get to compete in a world where there's a game and the game's got 40 minutes, and in business, the 40 minutes never runs out. That clock just always keeps running. Yeah. 
you, you hit on a few things that I want to dive into. First, the DISC assessment. I, I was first introduced to it actually in marriage counseling. And it was, <laughs> yes. But it, 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 to, to your point, it was the most helpful tool. You know, my, my wife, Sadie, and I are, are completely different. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a high I and a low D and she's a high S. And, and you know, uh, and so we, we operate at two different speeds of life. Um, but yeah. it, what it also really helped, though, was that communication of understanding first the science of understanding myself, but, but understanding who she is. And, and a lot of times our miscommunication was, was really driven off of different personalities and different styles. And so for us to be able to work through that and understand how to resolve conflict and um, it was massively helpful. And, and I think something that you hit on was for a lot of our athletes and founders, a lot of their skill set that made them so successful in the beginning can can end up being one of the most difficult challenges to overcome because if I <laughs> am a doer and I'm a risk taker and it's me, you know, it's me alone against the world, you all of a sudden build something successfully or an athlete transitions into business and now you have to deal with people, right? Yeah. And and something that I loved on, I think it was one of your websites or maybe even been in the book of how you um, to find an entrepreneur that it was something that was scalable and consistent. And yeah. I think that that's, that's where the, the rubber meets the road is a lot of times is you'll have that quick start and have a little success, but if you're not good relationally, you can't scale. Yeah. So you, you, you've got to be good relationally and you got to have an idea that can scale. Mm. Um, so, you know, it really gets around being sustainable and scalable and you're not going to do that as a lone wolf entrepreneur. You're, you're, and I think part of the issue that really happens for athletes a lot of times is they've been so used to controlling their environment and, and being able to control their own work ethic. And then they move in and, and the team players that they are used to having around, particularly at the professional level, Yes, there's all different sides and sounds of personalities, but there's a, there's a basic work ethic and they're all in the 98% category, you know, and it's just the one or 2% that separates the greatness. Uh, it's a very, very fine line. And that fine line carried over into the business world and understanding these principles of who they are before they enter in can make them so much more effective in building a team. And it's only teams that win. And the great news is, is in sports, you realize that, right. Um, you know, and, and I think it even makes it more difficult on the athletes that are participating in individual sports. You know, when, when you're a tennis player and you're not playing doubles, it creates, you know, this individualistic approach because you you are solely controlling every aspect. You don't have to worry about is my tackle going to pull properly and make the cross block so I can hit the hole. You know, there, there's an entire different functioning with a basketball team and a football team that's got to be in sync and got to be in rhythm all the time. and those that's really what business is it's getting things in sync and hitting a rhythm 
that allows you to orchestrate the vision that you have that you're trying to go accomplish. Yeah. Staying on that vein, vein of building a team, and this is true for the athlete, but maybe uh, speaking more to the founder, the entrepreneur of, in addition to trust, uh, a big part of what you talk about in your book is integrity and choosing uh, the people that you are going to go into partnership with, that you're going to put on your team, that you're going to surround yourself with. Uh, a comment we hear often, and and you drilled it in the book from the Godfather, is a lot of people will make the comment, uh, "It's not personal; it's just business," or, you know, they're a good person, so I trust them. Can you can you drill down into to how to build actual successful teams and why integrity matters? And and I and I say this because I you know this is one of the biggest areas where I. I see relationships blow up or I see athletes make decisions of who they surround themselves with or, you know, same thing with, with entrepreneurs or, you know, I'll talk to business owners and it's very clear they've got one person on their team who doesn't have integrity and they, they should be gone, but you know, they drive sales. So they're afraid to, to fire yeah. that person. Yeah. Can you speak into that? Oh man. Uh, in, in a minute, you know, and I, just was having that conversation this morning with my ops person. Um, you know, if, if you were in a foxhole hmm. and the enemy's approaching and the guy in the backside of the foxhole starting to cry and break down because he's scared, you don't have time for that. Hmm. And in business, everybody's bringing personal baggage to the table and we, we want to love and we want to appreciate and we want to care for all of those people and be empathetic with where a person is. But at the end of the day, you better produce and you better bring results. You better bring creativity and you're either a part of the solution or you're a part of the problem. And the chain of your business, like any chain, is going to be its weakest at the weakest link. So where is it going to break? It's going to break at the weakest component. So any weak player you have on your team, your team can only be as good as that weakest player. And, you know, it used to always be we would talk about egos. And, you know, you hear this a lot in the athlete world. You know, I, I, you have 12 players on a basketball team. That means seven of them have to be on the bench at one time. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want any one of those seven to have an ego that says, I enjoy being on the bench. Right. That's unhealthy. The counter is unhealthy that my ego is so big that I'll do anything to cut the legs out of anybody else to allow me to be able to play. So now let's move to the point of selfishness. I don't want either one of those extremes. I want someone that can have the balance to understand that I need an ego that believes I should be on the floor, but we've made a decision as a team that this is who's on the floor, and I support that wholeheartedly. And if the enemy approaches, I'm pulling the trigger because I'm not scared. I'm going to act in spite of the fear. And you got to have that kind of mentality 
Um, and there's just no, at the point we were dealing with the situation this morning where someone is feeling a lack of confidence and a lack of self-worth and they're needing reinforcement. Well, okay, that's fine. But there comes a point where that starts to get in the way of where we're going. Because if I can't count on you when I leave this conversation to perform, because you have to have me patting on your back 24 hours a day, then you're not the right person for the team. And so that just means that we will help find you another place while we go replace you. And, you know, when I tell my people every day, I mean, and and it's in the book, you know, stop the bus every 30 days, Eric, open the door, recommunicate the vision, let the people off that need to get off and bring the new ones on that need to get on to, to take you where you need to go. But, you know, it's a fine balance and I understand the struggle. Uh, and it's an everyday struggle. The second that you think you got it figured out, yeah. you, you don't because there's somebody else kind of going off course. Yeah. And I, and I think a lot of people listening, you know, they, they have to read your book because in this little section, you, you might come across as, man, he's, that's, you know, like that's, he's towing the line pretty hard. But, you know, I think what you had said is, is you invest in your employees, you communicate well, you, um, in addition to the hard line is, you know, it's, it's not an all for nothing. You know, it's, it's, I mean, look at the end of the day, just take it to your kids. Yeah. You know, look, you love them beyond anything else, but is this behavior acceptable? (laughs) All right. And then there comes a point that they have to have their own wings. And so you move them out of the house and you go, it's not my problem anymore. You you know, look, if you've ran up your credit card, that's your problem. Now, here's some things that you can do to get out of that issue. You know, you got to give up this, you got to give up this, you got to, but it's not my job to go do it for them anymore. And I think that's a fine line that we have in parental guidance. And it's the problem we're finding in business is so many, so many times we accept, and it goes back to our original story about the player and his, and his family members. It's not your job to take on their responsibilities. They have the responsibility for their, you're there to help them. You're there to guide them. You're there to love them. But at the end of the day, they still have a responsibility inside the team. And I I think the Dennis Rodman, Michael Jordan example was always one of those great examples. You know, they really didn't like each other. (laughs) But when they walked inside the lines, they could count on each other. Right. But they didn't go hang out at the bars. They didn't go hang out together. You know, they didn't socialize together. Michael didn't agree with Dennis's philosophies and his ideas. But when you walked on that court, you play defense and you rebound and you make us win and you're good with me. I'll respect you inside. But if you take that shenanigans and it causes us to go off course, now I got a problem with you. Right. And, you know, when it shows up for your job, do your job. 
and produce the results you're supposed to produce. And if you want our help, we can help you. If not, don't let this personal get in way of your, your responsibility and your task. Yeah, I, I love it. It's, uh, it reminds me just kind of the, the theme of it, of the extreme ownership. You know, there's a book by Jocko Willink just about this of, yeah. of going, you know, you, you need to take responsibility for um, those roles. And on the athlete side, what we see a lot of times, and, and I'd love to hear you speak into this, is we actually, I call it my manifesto, kind of like my Jerry Maguire <laughs> manifesto that I haven't released yet, but, but I really want to release it to a lot of the amateur families and to the parents and to help them understand that you're actually hurting, hurting your sons long-term and their ability to be successful people and athletes when, when you are essentially coddling them to the point of not allowing them to, to become their own people. Right. And even with a lot of our professional athletes, I see this, they're so dependent on other people that we haven't actually helped them be mature and successful adults. Right. And, and where I see that really come on the end is not so much uh, they need to grow up, but I see it with our, you know, major league players or NFL players that when their confidence is struck from a performance standpoint and they actually don't have the maturity as a, as a person, it really turns into a, a, catastrophe because yeah you know their 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 significance is built off of their performance and then when that fails which is natural i mean they're they're it, at the it, highest level you know you're 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 setting yourself up for a lifetime failure because you're you're never going to be perfect right and you know i think one of the greatest examples for players and for parents is what do you learn when you win? It's very little. Right. Where you really learn the great lessons and the great opportunities is in the defeats. And it's inside of those defeats where those are the opportunities where we learn how to become better. We learn how to become much stronger. Um, we learn how to overcome the obstacles that are in front of us. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I think you could look at and, and, and I admire despite what, you know, ESPN and the other ones want to do. But I mean, if you look at the university of Alabama and you look at what does success mean? And you've only seen this a few times in the history of sports. You know, there's the John Wooden ears with UCLA. There's right now the University of Alabama. For the last 12 years, every national championship has gone through them. Now, they maybe weren't in the national championship game, but who went through them won the national championship. You've got to get them out of the picture in order to win it. And last year, or now would be two years ago, you know, they lose on the last play. Most teams would fall apart on that. Instead, they come back and win the next year on the last play. And I, I think that speaks volumes to how you turn adversity into opportunity and have the courage to go out and risk it again. Hmm. 
you know, I got to show up to risk it again to lose in that same way. But instead, I turned it into an opportunity and won in the opposite direction. So, I mean, there's there's so much more to, to learn from our losses. And I love this adage. And I think this is something everybody could walk away with. You either learn or you win in every situation. Eric, those two things are positives. So if you just if you just take everything that happens to you in life and go, I'm either learning or I'm winning. And as a side note for parents, if you're not raising your kids in an environment to allow them to fail mm. in high school, <laughs> once they get to college, man, they're out of your hands. You know, you got to let them fail. And and I understand that that's a boy, it's a fine line. Where, where's that failure line where I'm not, you know, but you got to allow them to fail while they're still under your hands so that they can then learn what success really is. Yeah. Speaking of, I love that adage that you, you either learn or you win, but well, going back to that last play, as you said, it, the ability to risk it again. So whether you're the, the entrepreneur who has a failed idea or maybe it's just a failed campaign, it doesn't always have to be this huge catastrophic deal. Right. Um, or for the athlete, you know, I've had success my whole life and then all of a sudden I'm not having success. And there starts that doubt creeps in and fear creeps in. You, you talk a lot about fear in, in your book. Share with us what advice you would give to someone who's sitting at that, you know, that crossroads of going, man, I'm scared. I, I'm, I'm fearful to make that next leap. How do you overcome that and, and combat that? <laughs> That's a great question, man. You know, it, there's, it really starts with your faith and understanding that faith and fear have the exact same definitions. Hmm. It's the things unseen in our future. Now, which one you use as your motivation and your drive determines a drastic difference in the results that you're going to get. Faith is not the elimination of fear. Faith is the ability to act in spite of the fear. And it's a huge difference. Fear basically locks you up and leaves you right where you are. And you start to behave with fear. And so consequently, you attract more of it. Whereas faith gives you the positive to go act in, fa- in the face of that fear. And man, you'll attract more of it. Uh, and it really does start, I mean, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that you've got to get your faith in God correct before you get started. Because if you don't, and this kind of goes back to your original place where we started, you're going to be driven by the material. Hmm. And you're going to find out at the end of the day that there's no value in all the material things. They, they are just nice to have. but you can have as many of them as you want and be alone and have nobody to share them with nobody to love, nobody to appreciate and no purpose. And you find a lot of frustration and a lot of aggravation. And the reason we know this is we know that in billionaires, 
the hardest child to raise is the child of a billionaire. You think it's the child of poverty Hmm. and it's not because the child of poverty, though there's just as many demoralizing things, there's always the opportunity to have hope. In the other side, everything is provided. Everything is available. And to be able to take the balance and to be able to raise a child in that kind of wealth and be able to keep them hungry and to keep them driving for what it is that they need to be able to be able to achieve themselves. Now, that is the hardest thing that can be done. And you'll find with wealth managers that the most frustrated people in the world are billionaires. Yeah. It's, because they're trying to find that balance. It really is. We, we, we see it often. We're, uh, we're a member of a, a family office community, which is... Yep you know, full of, of billionaires and hundred millionaires. And as we talk about in the athlete world is, I mean, athletes, you guys are, are rich, but the guys who own your team, those guys are wealthy. And, <laughs> um, you know, what we see really, once you, once you've solved the money equation, there is, there's that question of success moving into significance and, uh, all of the, you talk to most family offices and people with, with a lot of money, their number one issue is not tax planning or estate planning or wealth transfer. It's what we call family governance. It's literally how do we transition this wealth to the next generation without ruining them? And it's a hard balance. You know, there's the approach of the Warren Buffett, give them a little bit, give them enough to do anything, but don't give them enough that they can't do, you know, there's a a great book for everybody right here on this. Really? It's called the Brower Quadrant and it's B-R-O-W-E-R Quadrant by Lee Brower. And, um, Lee's become a, a, a good friend, business friend over the last several years. His philosophy on wealth is dramatically different. And he was in wealth management for years and kept watching this third generation transition lose it all. Yeah. And he became very disenchanted with the typical wealth management guidelines because it wasn't transferring wealth properly. Right. And he left the industry and created the Brower Quadrant, um, it would be significant for any of your clients and for yourself to be able to look at wealth in a more healthy manner because the greatest wealth is your family. Amen. And how do I transfer this? And it starts at those core values and those beliefs, and we never spend time examining and understanding those. Excuse me. That, that brings me to just a, what you're saying is, is how we define wealth, you know, is, is right. very narrow, unfortunately, from a society standpoint. We think about it only as, as money. But, um, you know, we believe in five capitals, you know, there's social wealth, there's relational capital, there's physical capital, there's mental capital. And, and then obviously there, there is the, the financial capital. But it reminds me in your book, you talk about um, you bring up. Uh, Suzanne's Diary for Nicholas by James Patterson, The Lessons of the Five Balls. 
Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but I think that this is, this is great. And especially for athletes, it's, you know, you, you have to really look at wealth is equals freedom and freedom beyond just being able to buy things, you right. know, and talk a little bit about, you know, how you would define wealth and, and how you, you do comprehensively start to look at success. Yeah, Eric, it's a great place. And I think it really starts with the definition of freedom. Hmm. And really, freedom comes down to four key elements. I call them the four pillars. They're time, relationship, money, and purpose. And your drive and freedom centers around those four pillars. And typically, the entrepreneur doesn't start with money as the first pillar. You know, I started because of time. I was working for a guy making three times more money than I make on a monthly basis now. But he was dominating and controlling me and Hmm. controlled my time, which meant I wasn't going to be able to travel with my kid and watch him play high school baseball in his journey to go play college baseball. I wasn't going to be able to be around and go do those things because he was controlling my time. So it was more important to me to leave that job and to pursue my own venture so that I could have time freedom, which then led to my relationship freedom with my wife and my kids because I could have the time to be able to spend and develop that relationship, which eventually led to the money freedom becoming debt-free, which then begins the whole drive of the purpose-driven. Now, those four, it's very significant to understand what can get in the way of those four. Hmm. So Eric and anybody that you have has the freedom to go after those four, and that is what's made our country great. And why do people want to keep flocking here? It's because those four are taken from them in other countries because of what government can do. If government takes away one of those four, you're starting to now move to the dictator environment, the socialistic environment, which captures your freedoms. And you can't do that. The second thing is your health. And when you lose your health, you lose the opportunity to be able to drive after any one of those four in a total capacity. And so you got to watch both of them and you got to be able to manage those risks that those two bring to your freedom to pursue time, relationship, money, and purpose. That that's gold. Uh, for you, what, what's health look like? How, how do you, how do you <laughs> manage that balance? You know, and I think that the reason is, I ask that is, you know, for our athletes, when I was playing professionally, I mean, it, it was, it was easy, right? Cause it was my yeah. job when, when my professional career was over and I, you know, I started to go to work, I had lost the motivation to get into the gym at all, you know, and then really did let my health go for, for a while. But now, you know, getting to that point of going, man, but to be able to see my kids raised and to even run a successful company, I've got to be healthy. Yet there's that tension of when you own a business, I mean, 
there's there's never a, a time off, right? And so you've got to force right. it. How how have you managed that? What what would you tell us? So one of the one of the really important components is to realize that your business is going to move through some different stages, and you've kind of already been through and experienced this. But ultimately, for the founder, the CEO, having free days and what we don't understand and believe, and I've already been through it, so I know, is that we don't think there is a free day. And we actually even convince ourselves that we love getting on the computer, checking emails and, and corresponding, uh, having the phone with us all the time to be able to quickly respond. We, we, we think that we actually are, are doing ourselves good. When the reality is, is that there has to be days where you're totally disconnected from everything. And what ends up happening to you is it challenges you. When I first started this about three years ago, I was like, oh man, I I don't have anything else in my life. And now I've gotten to the point where, you know, I'm, I'm actually pushing 80 or 90 and the goal is to get to 150 a year where, man, you're totally disconnected. You you're, don't do anything with that business and you take a total free day. And that's, that's, a, that's a unique challenge for all of us because our business and our personal lives are so intertwined. But it is a, it is a goal that all of us, and when you do, you find your creativity, Eric. You find your ability to respond. You just find that everything starts to fit so much better and because you're better. And, you know, for athletes and like yourself, I mean, I had a stroke a year and a half ago. Wow. And I was lucky, um, you know, and it, I was in AFib, which is a heart condition. And as an athlete, you don't know you're in AFib. Now, if I'd have been overweight, they said, oh, you'd have known it immediately. I'm like, all right, well, this is no good. (laughs) You know, I have it and I got lucky and got through it. Um, No permanent, well, at least nothing visually seen uh, of permanent damage. You can ask my wife if she thinks there's a lot there. (laughs) But medicine only brings us about 40% of the answer. Hmm. You know, when an athlete blows out an ACL, he wants the doctor. Once that ACL is fixed and repaired, he wants the therapist. When he moves into retirement and all the conditions that are going to set in, he wants the integrative medicine doctor that can bring the supplementation and can bring the reading of his blood to actually have good quality health. Hmm. And health is really not about avoiding cholesterol or avoiding heart conditions. It's about achieving your optimal best. And for an athlete, that's always been their goal, you know, when they were in actual performance. My my son is a strength conditioning coach at Texas A&M. 
And so one of the big components is keeping those guys, not just what, what they do in the gym, but what do they do when they go home for diet? Right. Are they picking up McDonald's on the way home? You know, what, what are they eating? Um, you know, and our nutrition today is probably about 90% of all of our health issues because we eat so much processed food. So there's just, there's so much between processed food and sugars that if we eliminate those, we can start a process. And I mean, uh, there, we, we just have to understand that medicine today is only part of the answer and they have not moved to a point where the AMA as an institution can accept the holistic side, that place still sits out in our future. But for those of us as business owners, those of us as athletes that have the wherewithal, we have to be proponents of change in that marketplace. And we have to go participate in it and get good answers for our own health. That's great. Yeah. The, the challenge, it's funny uh, talking about the free days. I, I really appreciate it as we were trying to schedule this, this podcast interview over the past few weeks, there was, I think the, my original time reaching out to you, you know, your autoresponder essentially said, Hey, I'm completely disconnected. I'm with my family. I don't have my cell phone. And then you put dash, you know, ethical capitalism. And it was so intriguing to me because <laughs> there's, there's part of you as a business owner, you go like, I want that, you know, like I don't, I, I convince myself I can't take that. Or even hearing you talk about 150 free days, I'm like, how does he do that? But then I go 52 weeks times two days in the weekend. It's actually not crazy at all, you know? Right. And so can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, the next thing that intrigued me is this ethical capitalism, uh, dash sure. ethical capitalism. I'm sitting here going, I think I understand what it is, but you know, it's, it's not, this isn't a common phrase that, or we're taught in business school or anything. So. Well, and, and boy, Eric, you just, there's the, there's the holy <laughs> grail, you know? Yeah, we're not. We, and the shame of it was when we went just eight months ago, to go find the URL, ethical capitalism was still available. Yeah, I could not believe that. And I'm going, we're having all these conversations out there, and socialism has a historical perspective that it doesn't work. I, there's a reason why the lottery winners are broke again. <laughs> you can't give the money away to them. And you can't take what somebody else earns and give it to somebody and expect them to be successful. What we have to give is inspiration. Hmm. What we have to give is knowledge and give pathways to allow people to go be successful. And ethical capitalism is all about teaching capitalism for what it's good for. At its core, and you can visit a lot of different things about capitalism, and it gets tainted in the socialistic world as being selfish. And you can see by definition why. When you take ethics, which is just simply defined as doing the right thing, and mix it with capitalism, you have a powerful combination of what a socioeconomic level ought to look like and an engine ought to look like. If we're doing the right thing in capitalism, we're serving our employees, we're serving our vendors, we're serving our customers, 
we're bringing great value on a daily basis. It's going to bring 10x value to us. Now, we don't need to hide behind a bush on that. There's, there's nothing wrong with the CEOs who carry the greatest responsibility and the greatest liability and the greatest personal task for decisions, and they have to give up the most to be paid the most. Right. There's nothing wrong with that. But when it enters the point of greed, and a lot of people look at it and go, what's he need with $100 million? Well, go look at the responsibility. Right. Go look at what he has to go do. I think where we get this thing really screwed up is when we move over to our political d- d- environment and you go, okay, the president makes $153,000 a year or whatever the number is. It's some staggering, ridiculous number. But yet look at the responsibility that he has. <laughs> and you go to your Congress and you look at the ridiculous number we pay them while they're in there. But yet every one of them exits as a multimillionaire. Right. Where's that money coming from? How are they getting that money? So we've set up a system that requires it to be unethical. Wow. And we've got an opportunity in business to sustain our ethical capitalistic mode. And the thing that we keep finding is that there's, there's thousands of us out there, hundreds of thousands of us, but there's no one voice. Hmm. You know, there, I meet you, I meet JR, I meet, you know, the hundreds of and thousands of CEOs we've interviewed over the last 15 years. And these guys are ethical capitalists, but they're put underneath a bush and the media only talks about the ones that screw it up. Yeah. You know, you hear the Bertie Madoff story, you hear the Enron story, but you don't hear the Eric and Jeff stories. You don't hear those quality stories. Yeah. In in your book, you share the example of one of the business owners that pays for the kids' college after the, the yeah. they worked there for five years. I mean he worked there for five years and he pays for any of their any of his employees' college education. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's ethical capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Why isn't that story painted across all of Fox News, CNN, MSNBC? Tell that story. Right. You know, Harris Rosen is a quality ethical capitalist, hmm. and that's what needs to be told. Yeah. And so for our listeners, I mean, to, to learn more, they can go to ethicalcapitalism.com, and, and that's live. And uh, tell me a little bit about uh, you guys are taking it beyond just having a website. You guys are... You, you found it in hosting the TREP Summit on uh, September 27th. What, what is that? Well, so the TREP Summit is, is a place in which we're going to highlight business owners and what we call the eight mindsets of ethical capitalism. And, it, and Eric, it really, and any athlete can relate to this, it takes a certain mindset. Hmm. And so there's eight mindsets that we've identified. And those mindsets, if you possess those mindsets, then you can operate in an ethical capitalistic manner. And I think it's one thing when we say, you know, we need to believe in God or we need to be an ethical capitalist. It immediately says, how? Right. 
you know, how do I do that? You develop these eight mindsets and these eight mindsets give you that capability to operate in that manner. The book gives you the foundation. So if you just think about building a building, you got to dig the hole and lay the foundation first. The 10 principles that are in the book, Dogs Don't Bark at Parked Cars, gives you that foundation. Now we got to go build the building. And the building is my ethical capitalistic building that I'm going to go build. And it wouldn't matter if it's a family or if it's a business or it's a nonprofit organization, whatever that may be, these mindsets need to be possessed by the leadership and by the culture of the organization. That's powerful. And for the audience, I'll, I'll put links in the show notes for both ethical capitalism and then for the, the TREP uh, Summit and for, for the book. Um, man, po- powerful stuff. As, as we, you know, I want to be respectful of our time as we come to a close. A, a few questions that, that we ask a lot of our listeners that I would love to, to hear from you. And you've been gracious to, to share a lot already of your stories. But going back to what you said, you learn most from failures or through difficult times. Right. Is, is there a particular failure or situation that you went through personally um, that has been <laughs> kind of your, your favorite failure, as weird as that sounds, that, that you've learned the most from? Uh, you know, <laughs> I've been on this journey uh, with you and JR lately, and um, one of the ones that, you know, I didn't think of as a failure because you just put your nose down and you drive through it and you grind through but I've been forced to look at lately was a lawsuit that we had in 2010 Hmm. uh, where somebody copied all of our materials, went to the marketplace acting like us, taking and creating this confusion. And it ended up in a lawsuit because our lawyers said that we had to defend our copyrights and our patents and our trademarks and, and it was just a total failure. Um, you know, $300,000 later, year and a half, carried all the burden. And then, you know, the trickle down of the next seven years of the things that happened out of that um, are, are really significant. And, you know, JR just gave me a book and, you know, he introduced you and I. It's called The Joseph Calling. Yeah. And that book laid out that seven years for me and triggered this memory. Um, And, you know, it was seven years later to the date, almost to the exact week, Eric, that I went debt free and came out on the other side of this. Um, And and I, I was staggered by it. And so I would tell you that for all of us, there's points and places of crisis. Hmm. Some of those crises we're going to know that we're going through, and some of those crises we're just fighting so hard we don't even recognize them at the time. Yeah. There's going to be a place later that we learn from them and we come out on the other side. But wow. you got to have the perseverance to stick through it and keep working on what your calling is and where you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to deliver. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's uh, 
Yeah, lawsuits are, are never fun, but just that resource, uh, the Joseph calling it, you know, I've read through it and it's it's had a, a great impact on my life. So hopefully our listeners uh, jump over and buy that. Um, next question that, you know, we love to hear is who's really shaped you the most? Who are some mentors that that stand out to you that for our audience, who's always looking for kind of the next edge or the next great mind to follow, who are some of those people that you would point us to? Well, two of the ones in my past that still have a significant impact are always worth studying is one is Rich DeVos, who is the owner of the Orlando Magic and the Amway Corporation. Uh, Fascinating story wrote a book called uh, Compassionate Capitalism 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, He is the ultimate ethical capitalist. Um, The other person would be John Wooden. Hmm. Um, His book on leadership, I think, ought to be in every high school and college curriculum. Um, It lays out, you know, the pyramid of success that he built and his seven steps of, of everyday, you know, achievement. And I've passed those seven on to my children and I would, and I teach the pyramid to any group that's ever looking to, to learn what the fascination of it is. But I mean, those two in my history have been um, tremendous mentors, people that I've met. Um, I, I by no means was best friends with any of them. Um, Coach Wooden and I continued a, a pen pal relationship through the 80s. But there in, people like that have an impact that goes way past your personal meeting of them. Yes. Um, and then, you know, I've got people today like the Joseph Dudas of the world that um, have lived and have experienced it. They're as great of people as the Rich DeVosses and the John Woodens but they're not known on the national level at the same place, but their character and, and Eric, you know, this well, man, it's all about surrounding yourself with those like-minded people, because if you don't, uh, man, you're going to get led astray fast. Yeah, no doubt about that. Yeah. John Wooden is, uh, specifically my brother, who's also my business partner, played baseball at UCLA. So it's oh, yeah. <laughs> Wooden's legacy over there. And and it's it's so true, though. I mean, we have his pyramid of success hanging up in our office in, in Pasadena, California, and just the impact. And what's really been sad is I think in, in sports, uh, his leadership principles have been lost a little bit. And those are the type of things that we need yeah. teaching our athletes uh, a lot more. Yeah, just- just a simple principle. When I was the president of the little league association, I said, guys, we're never going to use the word win. Hmm. Let's start talking to players about achieving their best. Yeah. If the best is enough, then everything takes care of itself on the scoreboard. And, and all you hear, you know, even if you turn on the little league world series and, and these guys are doing the best that they can, all you hear is win, 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 win. Right. We're going to win. We're going to win. We're going to, you know, and it's like, guys, winning's the result of achieving your best. And if your best is enough, the scoreboard will take care of itself. And if it's not, then you walk away in honor because they happen to be better than you today. 
just that fundamental principle of wooden spread across all athletics would take care of a lot of problems. It really would. I mean, being on teams, you know, when you don't focus on the result and you just focus on the process and, and executing your plan, you look up and you go, Oh my goodness, look at what we've accomplished. <laughs> yes, you know, exactly. it's, it, it's amazing. Um, you, and you just stole the words. I mean, if you go listen to Nick Saban, what does he say? Focus on the process, focus yeah. on the process, focus on the process. Everything yeah. else takes care of itself. Yeah, it really does. One, uh, one final question. And it's a, and it's more of a, a fun question. You know, we yeah. didn't talk a, a lot about investing here, uh, in this, this call, but this has been so much fun. Um, is if you could think about the one, you know, best investment or worthwhile investment, and it could be money, it could be time, it could, it could be resources. Um, what comes to mind that, of that best investment that you've made? You know, in <laughs> these things always happen sometimes as an unintended consequence. <laughs> it was 22 years ago that I built the place here that I'm recording this podcast with you on in, in Tennessee. And, you know, it's the end of the dirt road type of place. I mean, we're an hour from a grocery store. Uh, I look out over Del Hollow Lake, which is one of the most pristine lakes in our country, uh, 45,000 acres. I can go out, sit on the deck, and just listen to the life. And, you know, I built it out of the necessity to be able to come visit because my father-in-law had gotten to the point with three kids under the age of six that we couldn't be in his house anymore. And it's turned out to be my children, believe, you know, this is home. They don't go back to Florida. They don't relate to Florida where they graduated from high school is home. This is home. And even today, as we're recording this, two of my daughters are showing up in about an hour to have one of their bachelor party, bachelorette parties <laughs> out on the lake on a houseboat. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's turned into the most special place and it's turned into a family legacy that will go on and on and on that now is in a trust that, you know, really creates a family tradition and all of my brothers bring their families up here for one week in the summer and we get two houseboats and go out and live on the lake for an entire week. Um, and it, it forces you, you have the, the cell phones are gone. The laptops are gone. You have to interact. You have to build relationships. And there's 10 cousins and wow. they're inseparable, Eric. Yeah. Those cousins are inseparable now because we've invested into the family, but it, it happened as an unintended consequence, but what a great investment it was. And that, by the way, is real wealth. Yeah, that's Those powerful. relationships are real wealth. Yeah, that is powerful. Well, Jeff, I, I really appreciate the time that, that you spent with us before, before we go are there any big asks of our audience of, of where they can a find you and, and what you would uh, ask of them as far as your book or yeah. the summit? Yeah. I mean, um, Jeff Pearsall.com or dogs don't bark.com. Um, you know, I strongly recommend the foundations of the book for anybody to read. Um, I'm honored that you did uh, in preparation for this. This has been a ton of fun for me. 
uh, because you're such a great host and you ask such great questions. Um, you know, but your comments back, you know, share them either on amazon.com or go directly to my Facebook and share them or to the website and share them. That feedback is highly critical for us in order to constantly keep improving and to be able to share the message with other people. Um, so anything that you can do along those lines, we really appreciate it. If you need any help, you know, I'm not an email. I'm not a, a, a person that posts and says, if you contact me, I'll help. You know, I've got so many authors that have put their stuff in books and said, contact. And you contact them and you never hear from them. <laughs> and I'm like, don't put your information there if you're not going to follow through. My promise to anybody is I will follow through. And by the way, all the fortune is in the follow through. Never forget that. Well, Jeff, that's a, that's a great place to leave us with that wisdom of nuggets. So <laughs> I appreciate you, man. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And for the listeners, we appreciate you guys listening to the athlete CEO podcast and hope that you'll tune in next week for another great episode. Thanks and have a great day. Mm-hmm.